Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Okay, I'm going to offer a piece of advice and then I'm going to read the Bible and pray and we'll begin. Here is the piece of advice. All through this month, we are attacking controversial topics or topics that are somewhat a little bit difficult to get our head around. My piece of advice is this. Turn off the offence button. Just, just, just unplug it. Unplug it. In fact, at the end of January, just leave it unplugged. That would be my recommendation for having a healthy 2021. But just unplug that button and listen. Listen and see what might be happening as God begins to speak into you through the scriptures, through the preachers. I'm really excited. We've got Taylor and Adelaide and Jacob and Brant all preaching this month. It's going to be fantastic. Really, really looking forward to that. And, uh, and I just want to encourage you, just step into that, step into the unknown here. All right, let me pray and then we'll get into the word of God today. God, we just offer every topic to you, whether it feels controversial to our minds or we feel really settled on where we sit with it. God, we just offer it all to you because we want our lives to be devoted to you, understand that they come from you and go back to you. And so, God, would you help us today to live in that way, a way that is, is for you and about you, and a way that is unoffendable, so that as we respond as followers of Jesus, it may be with kindness and grace and wisdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. Today's teaching text is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. It'll be up on the screen behind me, but by all means, read it on your own devices or even better, a paper Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. Okay. There is a narrative being pushed in our world today and you are familiar with it, I guarantee it. You hear it on university campuses, you've been exposed to it by your mates in in their more snarky, sort of passive-aggressive or just aggressive moments, and you've definitely read about it in some blog post or heard about it in the media, not necessarily on a reputable site, and the narrative is this, science and religion are in opposition to one another. That is the narrative we we are pushed in the world today. On the one hand, there are Christians and people of other faiths who aggressively reject what seem to be objective, measurable scientific discoveries. On the other hand, there are others who use the word science like they're swinging a baseball bat in the dark and they're just swinging wildly at anything they disagree with. They're not really interested in evidence to back it up at all, merely on winning an argument. Both sides tend to use the word truth pretty loosely and and often, and under no circumstances will they listen to one another. I want to suggest something that is a little bit obvious but is very helpful to remember. (laughs) 
Science and religion are not enemies. They're not. Just let me declare that now. This is an obvious thing, but we need to say it out loud. They're not enemies. In fact, Albert Einstein put it this way. Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Now, Einstein was not a Christian. He called himself a deeply religious non-believer, whatever that means. And, and he was somebody who saw the good, though, in both God and science. So today, my aim is not actually to get you to believe a specific doctrine or to believe different scientific theories, or, or, but just to, for you to take away this one simple truth. Christianity not only allows science, it is the framework that gives it meaning. It is actually the framework that gives science meaning. Now, quick sidebar, church, you will be used to me roving around like a madman and, and, and preaching off the cuff. That will not happen much today. I have written a lot of notes. I have done a lot of reading this week. Science, <laughs> Taryn and Jonathan are like, woo, yes, research. <laughs> and, and rightly so. And it, it's been an extraordinary journey and, and a gift to go on. But there will be a lot of reading from notes. So just, you know, treat it as a, a special day. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's go into a quick Christian history of science. Got to be very careful how you say that, because if you say Christian science, it means something different entirely. So put that phrase out the window. A quick Christian history of science. Why am I saying this bold statement that Christianity not only allows science, but it's the framework that gives it meaning? Here's why. Because despite what you may have heard, for the better part of 2021 years, the Christian faith has created space for scientific research to flourish. Not just to exist, but actually to flourish, expand, to grow, develop. Ancient religions made this impossible. Animism, which is the pagan religion that sees gods in rocks and trees and water, etc., makes a god out of objects. And if your object is a god, you can't study it because that's blasphemy. If I think this podium is a god and I try and study it, I'm, I'm trying to study God itself, even though it's, it's clearly right there in front of me. So that made it impossible. Buddhism believes that the universe itself is an illusion. Therefore, you can't really study it because the study is also an illusion. Polytheistic religions like Hinduism dismiss events because they use the actions of the gods as, as, the, as the cause and effect. So you can't really investigate first causes when you can just hand wave it and say the actions of the gods. But the great heroes of historical Christianity, friends, are people who have unflinchingly explored and explained truth through doctrine and science. Our historically great thinkers are people like Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, Irenaeus, John Calvin, these are, these are people who built doctrine through reason, right? It, it is a logical, reasoned progression. In fact, John Wesley came up with this idea called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Here I go, going off the cuff after I just said I wouldn't. Came up with this idea called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And, and one of the lenses he said we must look through as Christians is reason. We must look through the lens of reason. It is how we understand God. More than this, though, because those people were largely theologians, Many of history's great scientists were serious, passionate Christians. For these men I described first, theology was their, their job and science was their hobby. But for these, it's, it's the second. You know, Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, Robert Boyle, Johann Kepler, Galileo. All these people come to mind. And yes, I mentioned Galileo because most of what you've heard about Galileo is wrong. Look it up. Galileo had a fantastic relationship with the Catholic Church most of his life. Just read the Encyclopedia Britannica, okay? Don't take my word for it. In modern times, scientists like Francis Collins, John Polkinghorne, among literally thousands of others, 
have continued to add to this significant legacy. The relationship between Christianity and science has been, in fact, so important for so many years that in 1972, the prestigious Templeton Prize was established to continue rewarding those who, and I quote from their website here, harness the power of the sciences to explore the deepest questions of the universe and humankind's place and purpose within it. Because there have always been Christians who looked up at the stars and said, I wonder how they got there. So just to quickly summarize, there have always been passionate Bible-believing Christians who are leaders in a wide range of scientific disciplines from Jesus' day until now. Sounds great. So why is there a problem? I'll tell you why. The problem can be seen in Barber's four models. Ian Barber was an American scientist and scholar, and he wrote on the relationship between science and religion. And he created this framework to help explain the ways that science and religion interact. He came up with four options. The first he called integration. Integration, this should be up on the screen behind you, believes that the two disciplines can be integrated completely into one complete whole where they fully overlap. Now, that's a very ambitious aim, but that, that's one of the possibilities. Dialogue was the second one, where science and religion serve as conversation partners. That requires mutual respect and academic training. And as, as, both, as uh, theologians and scientists have sort of mentioned, this is a great idea, but both disciplines are continually, continually developing and getting more and more specialised and difficult to grab a hold of in, in their full nature, which means to have a dialogue one with the other, somehow you've got to have a, a grasp of both. And that is a rare and beautiful thing. The third is independence, where science and religion can both be true as long as they're kept to their separate domains. Like, it, it's, it's the sort of academic equivalent of you do you and I'll do me. It's your truth is your truth and my truth is mine. Um, and and it's, it's a big favourite of accommodationists such as the uh, atheist and paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, who came up with the idea of NOMA. How many people are familiar with NOMA? I actually really like this idea. Non-overlapping magisteria is what it means. I just, frankly, I just like the word magisteria. But I like this idea because it talks about the separate but equally important areas, or magisteria, of inquiry that science and religion represent. So Stephen Jay Gould was an atheist, but he looked at religion and he said, there is something of value here. And in fact, as we'll get onto a bit later, there is something here that science cannot speak into in full. And so he said, there must be these two, and he recommended this idea of independence. And then the final model is conflict. And in the conflict model, either science or religion is true, and the other, by definition, is false. So what's the problem? The problem is only one of these models gets clicks on websites. Only one of these models gets people buying newspapers. Only one of these models gets people listening to podcasts, and that is the conflict model. The rest are far too tame. They are not going to get you to click on BuzzFeed, you know? Like, this means that because conflict is, is the, the best model for promotion, it becomes the only model we hear about. And when it becomes the only model we hear about, in a pop science sense, in a pop theology sense, it becomes the dominant model of thinking. And we and our friends and family around us, particularly if we're not trained scientists or trained theologians, begin to believe the ideology that these two ideas are not only non-overlapping, they are in direct conflict with one another. Even if this is not actually what we are hearing in the academic realms per se, where there is a wide range. 
Now, this conflict model, friends, is driven not by scientific evidence or sound theological doctrine, but by ideologies, by what we want to believe. Long story short, this conflict pits one particular picture of God against people who refuse to believe in God altogether and won't listen to arguments about it. Very difficult to have a conversation. These sides are sometimes called creationism and scientism. Now, I'm not going to use that word often because, to be honest, they mean a wide variety of things. But sometimes, if you hear those words, creationist or scientist, not scientist, but scientism, thrown around in conversation, they're usually intended as pejoratives against the other group. You, you, you with me so far? Yeah. I need to walk around some more to wake you up, I can tell. Come on, January. Both terms are a bit misleading, right? Creationism and scientism. So let's remember the wisdom of Ferris Bueller, who said that people should not believe in isms. So <laughs> perhaps the strongest ism being espoused by the, by, the, uh, by the folk of the world who are, you know, in the conflict model, um, say the Richard Dawkins of the world, is that of Darwinism. Now, Darwinism begins with Charles Darwin's theory of biological evolution, but much like talking about religion and saying religion is like this, and you realise suddenly you're wading into a thousand different ideas, saying Darwinism is like this can be a bit like that too, because, because it sometimes means and contains a lot. So Darwin's famous book, On the Origin of Species, most of you have heard about it already. Very few of you will have read it, I'm pretty sure. But it first popularised the idea of evolution that we now take for granted, and it popularised ideas like natural selection. But Darwinism also became part of the social sciences. And this is really interesting, with the idea of social Darwinism, which applied the Darwinistic idea of survival of the fittest, of natural, in heavily inverted commas, selection, to people, to sociology, to economics, to politics. And this became particularly bleak in the 20th century, in the first half of the 20th century, through uh, the communists in Russia in particular, and of course through the Nazi party and their horrifying use of looking towards a master race and, and messing around with eugenics and, and looking towards shaping their own survival of the fittest through their terms. This was the end of Darwinism in one sense. It's horrific, but... For an atheist, secular Darwinist, if you tick all those boxes, it is intellectually honest. Social Darwinism, in particular, is, is the natural moral conclusion, not scientific, moral conclusion, of an outlook in which the fittest select themselves, right? So natural selection, I'm sure you've heard of it, but basically the idea is, uh, look, frankly, if you're, if, you're in a, if you're a young person in a church looking for a date, you've experienced natural selection, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave that there. It is, uh, whoo, but I'm not wrong. It is, it is the kind, uh, listen, listen, natural selection as part of the overall package of Darwinism, the entire package, uh, taken in its most pure form, to moral conclusions, leads people like Richard Dawkins, who would like to be an expert on religion, to say things like people with Down syndrome should be aborted in the womb and that it is immoral to bring them into the world. Look that one up. There's a spicy take for your Sunday morning. Darwinists draw that kind of moral conclusion because, and this is critically important, science cannot provide a sustainable framework for morality human rights 
and the meaning of life. That's not really what it's meant to do as a discipline. That's not the purpose of it. In pure Darwinism, morality is chosen by the strongest. Human rights are relative, again, chosen by the strongest. And the meaning of life is either totally absent or at best that you procreate and move your species forward. And that is a little bit bleak. It's a little bit bleak. The reason everyone in this room went really quiet when I mentioned that Richard Dawkins quote and the reason that Twitter went really loud when he put that quote up is because there is something within all of us that says regardless of what we believe, that is wrong. There's something horrific about that that stirs up within us. Darwinism as an ism has created real problems because it has conflated science, scientism and secularism and said basically all three of them belong together in the same package. And that is where we've started to run into problems. So in today's culture, to question evolution means to question Darwin's most obvious findings, but to promote evolution can mean actually quite a wide range of things. You following me? Questioning and promoting them are actually two totally different ideas through the ideology of scientism slash Darwinism. It's the isms that are getting us. See, friends, the biggest block between science and religion is neither science nor religion. It's our isms. It's our arrogance. It's this steadfast, arrogant refusal to allow our preconceived understandings to be interrogated. And for a Christian, friends, that is what science is there to do. It is there to interrogate reality. It is there to ask questions, create hypotheses, and come up with answers. And that is something that, as Christians, you need to be prepared for and totally unafraid of. Now, if you're anything like me, you may have wondered how these debates about science and religion actually make sense. And I just want to confess something to you. Everybody has, has like hot button things in their life that they get really passionate about. This is not it for me. Like every now and then I see people getting really fired up. I was like, ah, okay, sure. I'm, I'm pretty chill. I mean, as you'll see in a minute, I've, I've got quite a lot of space in my uh, theology for different options of, uh, of how creation came about. I'll get to that in a second. Don't leave the room yet. <laughs> but for some people, uh, they get very upset about this. And, and the reason I get confused is because religion and science are broad disciplines. It's not like you're attacking one specific thing. It's this giant idea that's getting attacked. And uh, so what triggers such anger about it? You know, apart from a model designed to cause conflict, as we've looked at already. Well, it may surprise you to find there are really only two trigger points in this. The first is miracles. Now, the problem with miracles is pretty simple. They, by definition, cannot be empirically proven, right? Miracles are present in all major religions and are, of course, critical to Christianity. If you're here and you're looking for a Christianity without miracles, you cannot be in Christianity, I'm sorry, it's just not going to work. Because the Christian story has the miracle of Jesus becoming incarnate, that's God becoming incarnate on earth as part of a virgin birth, then being resurrected bodily from the grave and descending physically into heaven. These are core tenets of Christianity. And while there are people that will happily debate on those tenets, if you are washing them all to the side, it is probably not because they're not true. It is probably because you are uncomfortable with the idea of miracles. So what do you do with the person whose cancer just goes? What do you do with the person who does come back from the dead? And there have been many, many reports of this happening. What do you do with this if you have no framework for miracles? For some scientists, that's a leap of faith they just can't make because miracles are just too unreasonable. 
But as Timothy Keller points out, denying miracles takes the same leap of faith. He says this, It is one thing to say that a science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It is quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes can possibly exist. Science can test for causes, but it can't prove for what doesn't exist. It's impossible. It's outside the methodologies of science. See, they address natural causes, but followers of Jesus do not only believe in natural causes, we also believe in supernatural causes, which by definition are beyond scientific understanding. Not, not in a hand-waving, ah, you can't measure it way, but in a sense like, no, 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 there is an entirely different realm. And, and, and even if we agreed with scientific theories, such as the Big Bang, the Christian looks beyond that to ask, where does that come from? And even bigger, who does that come from? So hidden in this idea that miracles are unreasonable is the idea that there can't be a God that performs miracles. But of course, if God exists and he is the creator at the center of the universe, then it began, as Genesis 1 affirms, literally out of nothing. Latin, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so it is perfectly reasonable to believe that there are miracles, things we have no explanation for, and that, like I said before, are a part of a different realm breaking into ours. See, scientists ask questions about the multiverse, but Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, where heaven breaks into earth. And in that, the Bible points forward to a vision of heaven where the miraculous is daily life. That'll be the vision of heaven. What we think are miracles will be our daily life. Where heaven breaks into earth for good, saturating it, bringing it together, effectively creating a space where the supernatural and the natural fully coexist. It's the integration model that we talked about, but it's on God's terms. There is one whole where the natural and the supernatural, governed by God, are together. That is the end goal of creation. All right. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> you can download the podcast and listen to it back. So with miracles, to deny them fully denies the existence of God. And that's a leap of faith and something that, again, by definition, and many atheist scientists have said this, science can't prove that. Science can't prove God doesn't exist. But the big debate, as we've already touched on, has to do with creation and evolution. For many atheists and skeptics, this is the big logical flaw and the major hurdle in accepting Christianity. So we've already seen that evolution can mean a wide range of things, so we've got to be careful swinging that word about. So what can the Christian believe regarding creation and evolution? Well, let me give you five positions. Alistair McGrath suggests four. I've added one that I see. Here are four responses and positions that he sees. The first is what's known as young earth creationism. It comes from a very literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2. And in that reading, each Hebrew day, there was morning, there was evening, literally represents 24 hours. Now, this is difficult to align with evolutionary theories. Uh, it's, it's obviously difficult to align with things like the existence of dinosaurs. There are a number of questions that come up about it. But this is quite a commonly held view amongst a lot of people, and no doubt amongst people in this room. The second position is old earth creationism. Um, arguably, McGrath thinks this is the majority viewpoint. Alistair McGrath, by the way, is brilliant. He's a theologian and scientist, and go read him immediately as much as you can. Um, old earth creationism is perhaps the majority viewpoint. There are two major changes from young earth. Okay, Here's the first one. The term day is not literally 24 hours for old earth creationists, but is a term used to denote the passage of time in which God works. 
And the second idea is that there might be a huge gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. That is between the act of creating the universe and the emergence of life on earth. Now, you might immediately apply this and say, oh, okay, so something like the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe, that idea fits pretty neatly in something like old earth creationism. All these uh, versions, by the way, have problems. Okay, I don't want you to hear that one of these is perfect. Here's the third argument. Intelligent design. Intelligent design argues that biological life shows an irreducible complexity, which means a creator God must exist. So um, if you've ever heard the argument like, look at the human eye, look at the complexity of the human eye, that is the kind of thing that uh, intelligent design advocates will put forward. And it argues against the explanations of standard Darwinism particularly around the meaning of life, and that some intentional, specific creation was necessary. So in the intelligent design model, there is room for forms of evolution, but not strict Darwinism. And, and certainly uh, they advocate that there are some times where God has directly intervened, such as the creating of human life. And we'll get to that in a second. And the final position that Alison McGrath sees is what he calls theistic evolution. Uh, and in that, evolution is an ongoing process, not a one-off event. And God initiates a process intentionally, which leads eventually to the emergence of humanity. That is, humanity is designed by God, but it comes about through evolution. Frederick Temple, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury and was a contemporary of Charles Darwin, put it this way, God does something more wonderful than just creating. He makes the world make itself. That's the position of theistic evolution. I would add the fifth position that I see here is pure Darwinian evolution. This is, again, these are not positions everyone should hold, but that can be held. In this fifth position, Christians take Darwinian evolution on board wholeheartedly and uncritically and fit the Bible into that where they can, like trying to shove a few things into a suitcase when you're going away on a trip at the last second or packing any sleeping bag. If it's not already obvious how I feel about it, it's safe to say that this position is not tenable, I believe, for Christians. That is to uncritically swallow all of Darwinism and say this exists. I, I think that is an untenable thing to do while still believing in a creator God. That is not necessarily speaking against evolution or speaking for evolution. I'm not really interested in making my position clear here. It's to say that when you hear the word evolution or when you hear about Darwinism, you should be willing to challenge the person who's talking to you. What do you mean? Because the conflict model with scientism has meant people rush in with the word evolution like a baseball bat. It's like, what, Hank, when you use that word, what do you mean? And that's a question actually worth asking and to de-escalate conflict, which I think Christians are called to do. Darwinism, as we said, runs into a few problems when you take it to its end. Darwinism, like science in general, can give you a framework for understanding how creation works, maybe where it began, but it cannot tell you who began it or why it exists. Darwinism does not have a framework for purpose. But for Christians, when we run into Darwinism, we cannot move towards, towards it uncritically, partly because reason but partly because by doing so, we move past the theology of God as the creator and we move past the theology of the Imago Dei, that is humanity created in the image of God. And, and this is where I, I want to start finishing. And yes, start finishing. In the passage we read in Genesis today, 
We read of God creating human beings, both male and female, intentionally and in God's image. And in the poetry of the Genesis creation narrative, which so many scholars, friends, this is why you have to turn your offense button off. So many scholars disagree on what the Genesis 1 and 2 mean, and Genesis 1 to 11 in general, but that's a whole other story. So many scholars disagree on the science, but two things are abundantly clear. And I would say if you're a follower of Jesus or you want to be, you have to hold a version of these two positions, right? There is room, but you have to hold a version of these two. First, God is the creator and he is creating. Now, how does that happen? I'm going to throw that back to you. But God is the creator. Without that, you are not believing in Orthodox Christianity. If you're saying, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe we'll call it God. Like, no, 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 no. The God of the Bible is, has, is the creator and he's creating. As the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann puts it, the phrase, listen to this, creator creates creation. Creator creates creation. That's pretty good as a coverall for everything because it asserts that God does something and continues to care about what he does. There has been a theory of creation put forward as a straw man by evolutionists of the blind watchmaker that God just puts creation into existence and steps away and is uncaring. And really, that's a scientism argument, not a creationism argument, because God does care. And that's why that phrase, creator creates creation, is helpful, if not a little confusing. Brueggemann goes on to say that it is, I'm just going to push through this, a narrative about God's insistence that the creation should be nothing other than his creation. That's what it is. Such a view leaves ample room for every responsible scientific investigation, but it yields not at all on the issue of the fundamental character of reality as derived from and belonging to this sovereign, gracious God who will seek to have his own way. This theological affirmation permits every scientific view that is genuinely scientific and not a theological claim in disguise or a false ideology, as we looked at already. Brueggemann, that's brilliant, right? You, you can argue with where to land within that, but Brueggemann's argument there is brilliant. Scientism and Darwinism as ideologies find no space here. They don't work because they are existences without God and they're existences that are unwilling to consider God. They are ideologies that reject the existence of God of science in favour of science as God. But there is room for many theological opinions on creation to live together comfortably. And when we examine religion through the lens of science, we can insist that everything fits in our boxes, right? You've done that, I've done that, we've all done that. But when we examine science through the lens of religion, we actually find something slightly different. See, science and religion share something important in common. They share leaps of faith. Scientists begin research with a hypothesis, right? An idea of what might be. They have a vision of what might be possible in the natural world, and they test to see if they are right. Sometimes they are, more often they aren't, not because they're stupid, but because that's how you find correct answers, right? By eliminating wrong answers. And they learn from their mistakes. But until they experiment, they don't know if it will work or not. That's why they do a hypothesis. God does the same. God created a natural world out of nothing with an idea of what might be, a vision. In one respect, a leap of faith, obviously not for him, but by entrusting it to us. See, Hebrews 11.3 puts it this way. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You know when Hebrews was written? 2,000 years ago. And here we are in the, in the 20th and 21st century and 19th century going, ah, we've discovered invisible things that create the visible world. God tested his vision through creation and specifically through the creation of human beings in his image. Whether you believe in a form of creationism or a theistic evolution or whatever, Christians must believe in the creator creating creation and in humanity intentionally being over, that God has intentionally overseen the forming and flourishing of humankind. It's not an accident. You cannot believe that humanity is an accident and remain a follower of Jesus. So those are, like, that's broad. If you can't sit under that, I, like, let's have a conversation. But those two things are things that we must believe as followers of Jesus. Scientific principles. God is the ultimate creator, and he has created, and he's continuing to create. And that humanity is made in the image of God, and God has not left us alone. See, one of the places where God and science differ is in that idea of noma that I mentioned earlier. Stephen Jay Gould could allow religion and science to coexist if they're apart from each other, but God can't. Like I said, he supports the integration model. God sits outside of time and space. He has the capacity to know all of time and, and human history and the future, so he knew how his test would go. It's a cheat hypothesis, really, if you know what's going to happen. But this is the way of God. He knew what would happen. But here's the worst part. Imagine God deliberately setting something in motion, knowing it would fail, or perhaps knowing that there would be a fall, capital F, and still allowing it to happen. That's an interesting scientific methodology. I'm sure I could be told there's reason for it. He knew there would be a fall. He knew the humanity project would require a version 2.0. There would need to be a new Adam. That was only in the natural realm. See, in, in the supernatural, in the heavens, God has always seen the ultimate need for the magisteria to overlap, for the supernatural and the natural to come together as the kingdom of God. This is the end goal of creation. God's plan has always been for heaven to meet earth, to see his glory declared through creations, we hear in Psalm 19, and to see the test of humankind made in his image to be a successful one. And in order to do that, in order to complete his test, in order to make the hypothesis come true, I know I'm stretching the analogy here, just let me go. I, I, when am I going to talk about science again? He introduced a variable. Jesus. He introduced Jesus. Jesus was the moment where the kingdom of God broke into the natural world in an incarnate physical matter. The miraculous in the supernatural occurred at the same time as a natural miracle, the birth of a baby. By faith, to paraphrase Hebrews, we understand that the universe was fulfilled by the living word of God. When the God invisible to us was made visible by the person of Jesus. See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the humanity project because when the creator creates creation and then enters it for love of the creation, the scientist entered the experiment. And more than that, he allowed himself to, to be the element that was, I'm going to stop trying to push the, the, the analogy there, but he allowed himself to die on your behalf. In order that the experiment would be completed, there was only one way it would work, and that was Jesus had to die for the sake of you and I 
to be in a position where we could be in a relationship with this creator outside of space and time, who yet out of love limited himself. And in this, friends, in this we see the vision of Christianity, which is not just to say how, but it's to say who, who. Christianity begins with God the creator, is entered into by the person of Jesus, is taken on by the Holy Spirit, and at the end of days, the Trinity and God's people will come together in this new integrated model where heaven and earth have met and the miraculous will become commonplace. And the question over creation and evolution will be moot because there will be a renewed creation. That is the vision of God for his people. Science can offer answers. And by the way, like, I hope there's never been a time in your life where you said, science is wrong. Like, What does that even mean? It's only because of science that I can like see you today, <laughs> but which is good. Science can offer answers, but it can't offer purpose to your life. Science can offer a framework of understanding, but not a framework of meaning. Only God can do that, and He has done it through Jesus. He's given you not just physical life, but He's given your life meaning. I was sitting there praying before and just feeling incredibly inadequate about this sermon because I'm a preacher, not a scientist. I don't pretend to have a wide knowledge. Certainly over this last week, I've learned a lot more than I've ever known about the various arguments about creation and evolution, the miraculous, etc. And in the midst of that uncertainty, I was just asking God, God, what is this? Like, what are we moving towards as your people? Why do we ask questions of science? Why do we ask questions of faith? What is going on here? standard kind of, I don't know what I'm doing moment. And I just sense God point me back to Romans. And in Romans 1.20, Paul reminds us that all of creation declares the glory of God so that no matter who we are, no matter our belief system, no matter whether we have known who Jesus is or whether he has yet to be witnessed to us, we cannot deny the existence of God the people that talk about intelligent design and the irreducible complexity of the world, the reason they get to that point is because they look around and say, there has to be more than this. They look up to the stars and go, how vast, how infinite is the universe? And when science catches up and says the universe is expanding at a rapid rate, we're like, so it is infinite. (laughs) And then people look down and do like Taryn, become macrobiologists and look down and go, what is within this? The without, the within. It's an extraordinary gift that we come to because God has not only empowered us to be his children, he's given us minds for keen reason. He wants us to seek our understanding. In fact, theology, friends, one of the best definitions I've ever heard is faith-seeking understanding. And so is science. Science is a framework to look at through the world. It's a, a methodological idea. It has purpose and intent and so much wisdom. And I hope, if nothing else, we never become the sorts of followers of Jesus who dismiss science out of hand. Because I think we have seen in 2020 that not going so well, right? But we need to be the sort of people that put science in its proper place, which is as a gift from God. God is still the God of science. It's not the science of God. And so we come to this place, now I'm going to preach for a minute. We come to this place at the start of 2021, on this warm summer's day, 
And we ask ourselves the question, as we so often do, what am I going to do with this year? And science may not have a whole lot of, it may not be ringing any huge bells for you at this moment. It probably doesn't ask you the questions of what you're going to do this year, but maybe science does have something to do with it. Maybe you want to have a baby this year, and you've just been praying desperately about that and wondering biologically how that's going to happen. This is where science and faith mix. And, and maybe you've just come through 2020 like the rest of us, and you've done the same thing that we've all tried to do on January the 1st, and gone, it's a new year, everything's different now, <laughs> because one more second has gone on the clock. This is what we do. This is why these milestones are like New Year's Eve are so important, because they give us a reality, a new reality to think about and push towards. And as you have thought about this, you may be going, where is Jesus in all of this? And I would say Jesus is with you. Jesus, who became God incarnate for you, creation, sorry, the creator limited to creation is with you now. In your deepest longings, in your biggest struggles, in your weaknesses, in your pain, in your brokenness, in your hopes and your dreams and the things you aspire towards and you long to do this year, Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit for all believers, is speaking to them, is within you. And the kingdom of God is near. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you are able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.